Go sim-free with Harvey Norman and break free from long and expensive network contracts. Choose the phone you want from brands like Apple, Samsung, Xiaomi and more. Get the Xiaomi Mi 11T smartphone with superb 108 megapixel triple camera. Now 399 save 150 euro. Or get the Samsung S20 FE smartphone and upgrade your view with the large 6.5 inch display. Only 569 save 100 euro. Shop in store or online today. Go sim-free. Go Harvey Norman. Alive and kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, if you read Richie Sadlier's book, Recovering, you'll know that away from the football punditry based in part to his own on-pitch career, he is also a qualified psychotherapist working mainly with teens and his time in session with them led him to begin giving talks around the country in schools and GAA clubs about sexual health and things such as online porn and understanding consent. This week he launched an online sexual health course and he joins me in studio to talk about it and why it became something he felt he had to do. I'll also be joined by Beatrice Caffrey of The Nourished Bowl, originally from Germany, now living in Wicklow, to talk about how a major life event moved her to begin nourishing herself with good food and what eating well means to her. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it's been a busy week, a good week, but a good one. Work seems to be stepping up a gear as we reopen everything more and more. And I do feel that we're closer now to life as we know it than we've ever been. So lots of good comes with that. But I'm back to spinning plates of various work things I have going on. Life admin, kids, husband. And look, it's all good. And I do remind myself regularly to stop either rushing through it all or dragging myself through it wearily on occasions. And I take a beat sometimes. It could be, I don't know, reading with the kids sometimes at night or when they're chatting to me in the car to just truly be present and actually listen to what they're saying. And that even me right now being really busy, these are the best of times. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't sometimes love to have an assistant that would help me to be a bit more present at times. But yeah, therein lies a lesson. And the weather is not what it was, um, but I fully embraced the sun while it was here. And I actually tried to recreate some of the things that you do when you're on holiday because of the weather. So there was one afternoon I just read my book all day lying in the sun. I mean, when would you do that unless you're on holidays? I hung out at the beach and met friends there all day. And there's something about, obviously, when you go on holidays, you completely switch off from work, hopefully. um, And you are in a different frame of mind. You're going out for all of your meals. And, you know, that's not necessarily possible to do when you're at home. But there's a frame of mind that you can put on your rest time, I think, that invites a bit more of the holiday feeling in. And I want to say thank you to anyone who got in touch about the panel I had on a couple of weeks back talking about changing career to health and wellness. I'm still getting messages about it. I got a really good reaction to the piece um, and I did really enjoy speaking to more than one person on a topic. Um, So I'd love to do more. So 
I don't know, maybe three pharmacists, three yoga instructors, three surgeons, three midwives. So if you work in health and wellness and you would be up for coming on the show, possibly even in studio here in Dublin, you can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Beatrice Caffrey is originally from Germany, living now in Wicklow, a certified nutrition and health coach. Her philosophy is that eating well should involve delicious food that doesn't involve calorie counting or meal tracking. That is right up my street and I'm a big fan of her Instagram, so I'm delighted to say she joins me on the line now. Hello, Beatrice. How are you? Hi, Claire. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very good. Beatrice, what brought you to Ireland in the first place? Uh, I married an Irishman, like many other people. <laughs> I uh, lived in the UK when I met my husband, Justin, who was originally from Dublin. And uh, uh, we lived in the UK for a few years. Our first son, uh, Luca, was born in the UK. And then we ended up in Spain for a year, actually, because we were on holidays when I was pregnant with my second child. Went into premature labour there, and our second son Joshua was born there. And, and uh, unfortunately, Joshua suffered a lot of health problems at birth. He was with us for with us for six months. Oh, sorry, he was in the intensive care unit in Malaga for six months, and uh, but sadly passed away when he was 11 months old. And we then decided after that that Ireland was the right place for us as a family to go because of Justin's family being here and you know cousins for Luca, etc. So. We arrived here in uh, 2011. And, uh, when you yes, think sir. back to that time, I mean, obviously yourself and, and your husband had been rocked by yeah. what had happened. Was it very much a, a rebuilding process for you then? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I had no experience. I'd had no experience of premature birth, of having a baby in intensive care unit and then, you know, this happening at the end. And... It was, you know, we were ended up in Spain for a year totally unexpectedly. We'd only gone for a holiday for, for, for a week. So there was a long process after that of rebuilding us. I um, started walking actually a lot. We got our first puppy uh, and I started walking in the Wicklow Mountains. And I really think that I walked myself out of grief. Um, there's a lot to be said for walking. And was that the beginning of your journey to nourishment? I think the fact that you call your company and your Instagram, the nourished bowl, I think nourishment is such an important word because it's not just nutrition. It's also about the time you give yourself and your soul, isn't it? Absolutely. And I I talk about that a lot on my Instagram as well. I will often also post about um, going for an early morning swim or going out on a hike or doing things that make you happy. And you're absolutely right. It's not just not just the nutrition it is the movement, it is sleep, it is hydration, it's all these things. So yes, it's a mixed bowl of things. So at what point then did you decide to study nutrition a little further? So I suppose I was always interested in cooking, but I didn't really know anything about proteins and fats and all these things and how to put these things together. And in 2015, actually, I did the uh, Joe Wicks program, The Body Coach, and that's where I learned quite a lot about that. And I thought, this is really interesting. I'd love to know more about it instead of just cooking meals. So in 2016, I trained as a nutrition and health coach. And uh, then in 2017, my husband and I decided to try out a vegan diet. And he was actually the, the, the one who initiated it, which was quite interesting, because often I think it's the other way around. Um, but he had already started to cut out dairy and eggs because we found out that he was allergic to them. 
so for him actually then cutting out meat, he was definitely the bigger meat eater in our family. That was quite a it was still quite a big thing. Um, but because I was doing all the cooking, I thought, well, you know, I might as well give it a go, give it a try as well, because I'm not going to start cooking different meals. So that was 2017, and we haven't really looked back since then. What's your advice for upping your vegetable intake? Because I think we're all guilty of just throwing the same veg into the trolley and then just cooking it the same way. I mean, we steam most of our vegetables, which doesn't make them seem very exciting for being the main player on your plate. Yes, we tend to all buy the same things. I mean, you could challenge yourself. And and even if you just say, once a month we try a new vegetable, that would give you 12 new vegetables at the end of the year. That's quite a good achievement. Um, so you could, um, if you have it again, if you have a favorite meal like a, a lasagna or a shepherd's pie, try and incorporate more little vegetables into there. You can add butternut squash. You could use um, sweet potatoes instead of regular potatoes for your mash. Just try out different things. There's so many um, resources uh, available also on, on YouTube, for example, and they're all free. So a fantastic recipe of food channels like, you know, the Happy Pear, uh, Jamie Oliver, there's Bosch TV. There's a lot available. I know for some people, actually, it can be too much. It can be too overwhelming. But if you, let's say, like I said, if you try one new thing every month, that could give you 12 new things by the end of the year. And that would be amazing. So what would you say, Beatrice, is your food philosophy? My food philosophy is um, regular ingredients that you find in your local supermarket. I've come away from trying to you know, use ingredients that are too unusual because it doesn't really resonate with people because we don't really have time for to source them or to, 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 to find them. Uh, regular ingredients, um, use up also what you have in your fridge and what use your freezer. It's so important that we use our freezers to our advantage. Um, a lot of us don't, we don't even know what's in there. Try to organize your freezer and then, you know, make the freezer and your pantry work for you. Yeah. And then just have sauces you can go to or, you know, have, exactly, cook bigger have, and then have one that you can pull out next week. It does ultimately make a big difference because would you say, I, I mean, it has become your way of life now, but would you say it is a big commitment to eat well? Do you have to commit to spending time in your kitchen on a regular basis i think you do have to commit to a certain amount of time yes and it's the same thing with you know with exercise etc uh, you have to make that time and it can be an hour on a sunday or, or whenever you have the time just chop up a lot of vegetables for the week and then on the monday for example you could roast some of them and use them for a pasta sauce on a tuesday you can throw some of them into a stir fry on a wednesday you can use some of them in a curry so that gives you three different dishes already and then when you're making those dishes, make doubles so that on a Thursday and Friday, you've got food ready. And the same thing, you know, or you could make a big batch of mashed potatoes or a big batch of rice and use that in different ways during the week. You don't always have to cook full meals ahead, but even just certain ingredients, if you get them ready and then you have like you have, as you say, if you have sauces or you have certain spice mixes that, you know, you can get great spice mixes now in the supermarkets, have a nice Italian one, a nice Mexican one and a nice Chinese one. Again, you have three different types. And then what impact has your lifestyle had on your life? I mean, if, if you look back on that rebuilding process you, you, you had after losing your son in that mm-hmm. way, you began to invest time in yourself to be 
to be walking with the dog and began to learn about nutrition and eat better. What impact did that have on you and your well-being? Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, I couldn't even put, I couldn't put a price on it. But I, if I look at pictures of myself from five, six years ago, I'm a totally different person, right? But this is not just nutrition. It's like I said before, you know, I actually, I gave up alcohol also in 2016 and not because it was really a problem, but it just didn't fit into my lifestyle anymore. And I was, I kind of realized that I was working against every time, you know, maybe I'd had a night out, kind of undid any kind of good that I'd done before. Uh, I, I really look after my sleep as in I, I, I go to bed at mostly the same time and, and I really value my sleep. It's so important that we get the right kind of sleep. Uh, I try to hydrate myself well and I move every day and, and obviously I eat, you know, I try to eat the right foods, you know, I'm not perfect either. There are days when you have some chips because you don't have time to, to, to cook or but it's 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 a mix of all these things, and I can't even tell you the difference. I mean, I'm now I'm 52, and I feel absolutely amazing. And I think actually coming to this age thing, I think especially for women, it's that you know when you're in your 20s and you're in your 30s, you can get away with a lot. When you're in your 40s, you you realise you can't really get away with that much anymore. You know, late nights and all these things. And when it comes to perimenopause and menopause, I think. It makes a massive, massive difference if you start to look after yourself in your 40s. Yeah, and it can make a difference with hormone regulation if you're yeah. doing the things that you're talking about, like the sleep, yeah. like the stress management and eating well. Um, yeah. Tell me a bit about your Instagram then, Beatrice. What are the sort of questions you would get asked from followers most? Yeah, so I actually I, did, I put a little poll up, the poll up the other day and it was quite interesting. So the... the the thing that people struggle with mostly is um, cooking for a family where everybody has different tastes. I think that's the biggest challenge that people have because not everybody is on the same wavelength, unfortunately. Um, and it can be a challenge if you have, you know, one person wants to eat meat, the other one doesn't, the third one doesn't like this, the fourth one doesn't like that. One of my favorite meals, actually, sometimes if I get everything out of the fridge, you know, all the leftovers and the, if you have some hummus, if you have some pita bread, if you have some cheese and all these things, put this all on the table and everybody can pick whatever they like. I mean, obviously, that's not the kind of dinner you can have every night, but maybe once a week. It's kind of an interactive, fun dinner. And like I said, everybody can pick and find something that they enjoy. Yeah, I always prioritize having a family meal and mm. everybody sitting there together because I think it does force you to make it something decent to put in front of them. But to take the time and celebrate good food, I think it's just a really good lesson to start early. Yeah, exactly. And actually, when it comes to kids, um, you know, I know it can be tricky to getting kids to eat vegetables. I think, first of all, don't take it personal when they don't like something. You know, we all have things that we don't like, but equally persevere. Keep trying. Keep trying. I always say, you know, I put broccoli on the table nearly with every meal and it's like brushing your teeth and washing your hands they will eventually realize this broccoli thing isn't obviously going away so (laughs) at some point you have to accept it um also you have to consider taste and texture so you'll have people for example they don't like bananas but they like banana bread and sometimes kids don't like mashed or, or kind of roasted vegetables because they're too mushy but they like them raw so, I, for example, my son used to, uh, doesn't really like roasted vegetables, but he loves raw vegetables. So I, will, I would often, 
give him raw vegetables instead. Like, you know, you have carrot sticks and cucumbers and peppers and tomatoes and all these things because that's the way he likes them. So that's fine. So for somebody listening who thinks, yeah, OK, I want a bit of what Beatrice has at 52. Mm. She's never felt better. Yeah. What would be the one place you'd suggest they start? Uh, so have a good look. What's in your pantry? What are the foods maybe also that tempt you into um, not so good nutrition? So if you have a lot of junk food and processed foods, I would try not buy them. I'm the same. If I have too much of that in my in my cupboard, I will, you know, I'll I'll, I'll eat those instead of the the um, the fresh ones. You know, go for fruit instead of uh, the junk food because sometimes also people get so the, the processed junk foods can be so high in sugar that you actually don't taste the sweetness of fruit anymore. So try and go for fruit first. Um, especially at the moment, we have fantastic summer fruit now. All the berries and the nectarines and the peaches—they are delicious. If you start eating those, so in, instead of the, the 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 cookies and the biscuits, after a while you'll realize that actually they taste really nice. And then when it comes to vegetables, try something new once a month and make that a regular thing. Well, there are lots of recipe ideas and advice on uh, Beatrice's Instagram, which yeah. will connect you with with all things food related. It's called at the Nourished Bowl. Beatrice Caffrey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Claire. Love talking to you. Coming up after the break, former Irish international, now football pundit, Richie Sadlier on his work as a psychotherapist and how it led him to launch an online sexual health course for young people this week. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Why don't we talk about sex more often? Now, this might be a question that jolts you a little bit, especially around 9.30 on a Sunday morning, but... I don't think it should so much. It's a natural human behaviour, which actually led to you listening to this right now. And yet it's often shrouded in lots of secrecy and shame. Now, Richie Sadlier is probably most connected in your consciousness with football, his career, um, also playing for Ireland. And he's also an author. His memoir, Recovering, was named on Post Sports Book of the Year. And you will see him most recently talking about other footballers and what they're doing at the Euros on TV. But he's also a qualified psychotherapist and his work with teens led him to give courses on sexual health in schools and GAA clubs. And as of this week, online with a new course called SHARE, Sexual Health Awareness and Relationship Education. Someone is talking about sex. Richie Sadlier, you're very welcome. Thanks, Claire. Good morning. And it's not that nobody's talking about sex, of course, but it is still a bit of a taboo, especially with young people and how we introduce them to it. And your whole interest in this area came from the young people you were talking to and what you were hearing in sessions. Yeah, initially it was. So going back five or six years when I started to focus my practice more to working with adolescents and their parents. And and you just familiarise yourself with the, the modern landscape of young people. Um, and it, it, it is very different. There's some things that are very same since we were teenagers, but the difference is obviously social media and sharing of images and there's online dating, there's online porn. Um, so much of their behaviours on a night out will be filmed because they all have cameras. All those extra little things that are just tricky to deal with, as well as the developmental stuff and their own emerging sexuality or struggles or questions that, to be honest, any generation of teens could have. And started to realise, and it doesn't take really long to realise it when you look around and you go, there's nothing really in place 
at the moment for young people. Um, it, it, it's kind of some parents might be good to talk to their children. Some schools are good, but even the national approach is to leave it up to the ethos of each school. So there, there, there's no kind of joined up thinking that, that you can look at any 16 year old in the country and said, we know the information and the education they're getting because it's what everyone's getting. Um, lots of reasons for that. And like you said there, people are understandably, we're a little bit awkward talking about sex. Like in social scenarios, it's not appropriate to talk about the sex you have with your partner. Probably it's not socially acceptable to talk about the things you'd like to do sexually. People generally get turned off by people who keep banging on about their own sexual encounters. Um, and when you talk to young people about sex, it's like, oh God, like there's ethical stuff here. Um, there's the age of consent to factor in. Are you giving them information that they're not aware of yet and you could be confusing them or distressing them? Um, or are you planting ideas in their head? That's a big fear that a lot of people have as well. So I think the general approach among a lot of people, whether it's within households or relationships or families or in schools, it's to kind of back away from it and to play safe. Um, because that way you won't say the wrong thing. And that's really understandable. I think the flaw, the major flaw with that approach is we're, we're, we're failing to step in to support people who I think are in need, who really are in need of support. And the more and more experiences I had in therapy dealing with young people, there, there, was, there was one, I wasn't sure to mention this, that there was one particular, one young man, I won't tell you, anything that the, the details involved but he was he, he came to me for therapy probably five years ago having attempted suicide as a as a impulsive distress response to the scenario he found himself in thankfully obviously he survived the attempt and over the course of the the, the i did about a year's work with him um the adults in his life were, were, were uncomfortable the parents weren't available involve themselves in any conversations um, he had no older siblings or friends that he spoke to about sex at all his educator in this area was the online porn and the partner involved in, in, in the, the encounters was the same and, and there was loads of others where you just think this stuff was avoidable now you can't I don't think you can come up with any approach at all that prevents teenagers saying or doing really cringy things that for the rest of their life they look back on with shame. Like I'm sure... It's you, all part you, of yes, it, isn't you, it? You make mistakes, yes. you make poor judgment. Yes. But you need to be armed with the information. Yeah. And as it stands at the minute in the curriculum, sex education comes around fifth, sixth class. It's towards the end of the primary. That It's the first time it's ever mentioned. And then it deals only with the reproductive system and sex between a man and a woman. and that And that's it. But is it okay to kind of, I, I do think that needs to be looked at and, you know, I'll very clearly state that. But it's not all down to schools, mm. is it? I mean, it it should be tackled in some way at home as well. And there should be a place for open discussion because historically a kind of a, a book is kind of left lying around. Is that what you got? What did you we get? We got a book, yeah. Did with you? these, I can at still see the characters now and what they looked like. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I was a big reader and I was a very nosy person. So I probably found it too early. Okay. Um, I was 12. I was given a book. My mum had found out that me and a girl had been kissing behind the youth club the previous weekend. And she sprung into action. There's a book. If you want any follow up questions, you know where I am. And of course, I was mortified. Didn't have any questions. 
don't know how much attention I paid to the book. It was just, this is, this is cringy. This is awful. And again, I suppose it, it's very easy to be critical of the education system or schools or whoever, politicians, the church. You, you can, I don't think you get anywhere by kind of finger pointing and blaming. I think it's, it's more coming up, well, what's a solution? What's a workable solution here that would support young people? And like you say there, like schools have a role to play and parents do too. But if a lot of parents are reflecting on their own childhood experiences of having the chat or the book with their parents in the way we just did, they haven't been really briefed or coached either at all in how you have these chats. So there's a lot of reluctance and lots of reasons um, because people, adults especially, we're kind of all influenced by our own experiences and our own behaviours and some stuff that was distressing or, 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 or traumatic or it, it brings up a lot of stuff for a lot of people when you start talking about sex in a really open way um, so most people don't or they do after a load of drinks and then they wake up and they regret what they said and they regret what they did so I think a better approach is to kind of normalise the conversation take the shame out of it take the judgement out of it um, and just broach it at an age-appropriate way in any household with any youngster and know that, so that the youngster knows that if at any point there's a, there's a, there's a question or a conversation or an observation that they've seen or something they've, they've picked up online, it, that they know that there's an adult in the house or an older sibling or whoever that they can bounce this query off and it's no big deal. Yeah. But so many households, it's like, no, they just wouldn't. They just know that the, the, the doors are shut and it's like you go elsewhere for this information. We don't want to know about your emerging sexuality because you're only 13. You're only 14. You're only 15. If you're a girl and you express desire in this area, you'll be slut-shamed. If you're a boy and you do likewise, well, you're only after one thing. If you're gay, well, that's problematic in some circles too. So you're like, well, where can we go where it's just accepted as a normal, healthy part of a young person's development? Um, and I think that should be everywhere. Uh, you're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk, and I'm talking to Richie Sadlier about an online sexual health course which he launched this week. Okay, Richie, I'll have to take a break, um, and when we come back, I'll continue talking to Richie Sadlier about SHARE, the sexual health awareness and relationship education programme he launched this week. You're very welcome back to Alive and Kicking, where I'm joined in studio by Richie Sadlier, probably best known through his work as a footballer and as a football pundit, but he's also a psychotherapist. And this week he launched SHARE, a sexual health awareness and relationship education programme for young people, which is online. Um, and I was speaking recently to um, a lady called Sarah Sproul, and she is looking to reduce the stigma around sex education. Um, and she just really reframed my thoughts on it, even as a parent, um, that the more you have open conversation about anything, it doesn't even have to just be about sex, obviously, the more we're raising open adults who ha are compassionate, who lean into sensitive topics. And I think we all agree, looking back at history, that the more we have that at the centre of our society, the better off our society will be. And I think that's a particularly worthwhile approach or environment to create in this area. Because... For all the reasons we spoke about, like it, your sex or your sexuality or your experiences or your relationships or what you want or what you regret, 
they're kind of personal stuff and with it can come feelings of shame and embarrassment and awkwardness and if you talk about it at the wrong time in the right wrong way maybe to the wrong audience you could be judged or it could come back in here or you could be constantly slagged about it so there's loads of reasons why people retreat and even in an open environment they mightn't feel comfortable to talk Um, but it, it, it really matters because God, even if I switch to some experiences I've had with adult clients, they're still impacted by experiences they had in their adolescence. And the lack of any available adult to tease through what they've been through or to help them process what they've just gone through or just to remove those critical or judgmental or shaming voices that are in their own head that you kind of carry with you all the way through your adulthood. And where you just actually know, like, what happened there was... What happens to lots of us or I can understand why you did that sure you're only 15 you're only 16 how are you meant to be an expert in relationships you're just learning as you go as we all did so maybe put the stick away and they'll be beating yourself up a, a conversation like that with a 15 or 16 year old can help put them on a different path than someone who never gets the opportunity to speak to anyone about this part of their life at all because all the adults in their life are just afraid to go near it yeah, and it's about having that language. I mean, even generationally, when I was a teenager, there was no talk of consent whatsoever. It didn't come up. And even watching normal people, you know, it was such a prolific series about two young teenagers coming together and consent was smack bang in the middle of it. I mean, Hollywood will never have somebody reaching for contraception, will never have consent. It's just all romantic and perfect and great and everyone has a great time and off they go on the back of a Harley Davidson and it's not real whereas Mm. I thought that was very interesting and I think the language and the way young people speak now is is very different. It is um, like there's so much different about the landscape in which they're in but they're they're exposed to so much more information and, and so much more footage of of scenes or, or or vocabulary that teens way back when I like we just weren't we we didn't have access to what they have access to now so I think especially when it comes to consent I think a lot of the conversations is it, it, it's fraught it's like there's an assumption that we're talking about sexual assault or maybe something even more serious there's a bad guy there's a there's a victim or a survivor and it's 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 a crime scene and and in you know, or an alleged crime scene. And then that's the conversation we must have. And it's legal language and it's rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts and moralising. And, and I think if you can if you can broach consent in an entirely different way, in a classroom or with young people, say consent is about you and your partner being on the same page and having as much pleasure and enjoyment as you can. Teenagers hear that and go, okay, right. The more I get into this consent thing, the better the sex is going to be. And teenagers will jump on that. If you go to, into a classroom or into a young person with a finger-wagging approach, particularly a bloke. They just go, okay, I'm being shamed here. That was one of the big things we used to hear from the students initially when we used to speak about consent in our sexual health modules. There was a groan one day when we said, oh, we're bringing up consent. And I said, well, what's the groan about? They said, we get it. Like, no means no. Don't be raping people. And I said, where did this come from? And they just had a module in, in gender studies or something, and that was the approach. So... The approach matters, the tone matters, the, the, the way in which you pitch it. And I think if you can get young people on board, that actually consent makes the experience better and more pleasurable and more memorable and more satisfying for everyone. And you explain how you do that and, and, and that it's communication. 
respect and communication and they're kind of waffly vague words but when you're in a room where you tease it out actually what is that looking like in real time so you're moving away from courtroom language or legal language and you're bringing it into the bedroom and go how do you know the person who you're with is comfortable doing what you're doing with them and the answer is always you just check in you just talk and it's really it's really normal it's really common sense stuff and they're all sitting in the classroom nodding away like you're nodding to me now so and it, it takes out all that that the anger and the pressure and all the triggering stuff that we all have when there's an allegation of a crime and everyone in the media is really hyped up talking about it. Um, so you, you, you step away from that environment and just talk about it really, really early before somebody somewhere has had a really distressing experience and then we launch in with our discussion about consent. And is do we still talk differently to boys and girls or male and female about sex regardless of their sexuality I still feel there's this old fashioned view that it's a duty for women and a need for men that has to be managed we still seem to look at look at it in that way which is just so wrong one of the things we we do in the class which is also in the online course is we kind of help the youngsters tease out what are their views on that particular topic and we start with usual questions. Okay, if a man and a woman are together and they both fancy getting married, whose job is it to propose? And why? Well, like, where does the idea come from? Why did you give the answer you just gave? And you can think of loads of normal social scenarios from holding the door open, paying for a meal, driving the car, whatever. So if a man and woman are together, who, 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 what roles are you giving to each? And so you're going to help them tease out generally what are their views in this. And then you bring it into the world of relationships. And in sex, and it's that thing as well. Like, do do girls give themselves permission to speak openly and comfortably about their sexuality? Um, are boys giving themselves permission to speak about some of the, the the softer stuff, the emotional stuff, or are they signing up to some very narrow, strict view of what it is to be male? So you're kind of helping them tease out what it is they think, helping them explore where do these ideas come from? Is it just from each other? Are they watching their parents? Is it conversations over breakfast where a very strict view of maleness is presented every morning and female behaviour is a very narrow set of do's and don'ts as well? Who's and bringing out the bins? It, all, <laughs> all of that stuff. Or, you you know, you have someone sitting there and they're reading the newspaper and, and you know, dad gives his hot take on the people involved and you can you've, there's very clear messages here about do's and don'ts for men and women. Or, or mum is the same. And, and so all those messages are constantly heard by these young ears of a teenager so you go, well, that's where you're hearing from. And how would it work for you if you put those ideas into practice? Would it help you be you? Or are you restricted in some way? Wouldn't it be better for you just to be you and actually step away from what you, your dad thinks all blokes should be or your mum thinks all blokes should be or all girls should be? So it's all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's kind of empowering them as well. Um, as well as informing them and, and educating them and just creating an environment where actually this is this is normal. We all have a sexuality. We all have experiences. We're all going to be in relationships. We'll all be hurt. We'll all hurt other people. We'll do and say things we wish we didn't and our partners will too. This is the messiness and the complexity of relationships. Um, and the more you talk about it with each other, the more support you can get. If you're in an issue in a relationship and you're not telling anyone about it, you're... you're distancing yourself from some feedback which could really help or some intervention which might be really needed. 
or helping you make a decision that really needs to be made. You know, this kind of it's really, really basic stuff. Yeah, and it's but you can't do it unless you you say, okay, this is normal. Let's talk. Yeah, it's just about openness and, yeah. and communication. So yourself and Elaine Burns, who you worked on the course with, you had gone around to a lot of schools and tackled these topics and GAA clubs, but obviously you're only two people and there's only so much you could do, which is why you wanted to mm. move it online. And that's how so many of us now are taking in information. So how did you pick what each module was going to be and what, what topics you wanted to make sure were covered? Well, we had spent two, two and a half years in, in transition year classrooms kind of tweaking and, and, and trying out material. Like, we just had an idea. Like, and St. Penildas College, the, the, stu- the school I used to go, I was in there doing a mental health, mental fitness module with the transition year lads. And on the back of lots of conversations that was in that module, coupled with the stuff I was hearing in my practice, got in touch with Elaine and she'd done a lot of research in in... in consent in third level and all her research in third level suggested that this needs to be brought in a second level so when we got talking we did this module and we just kind of realised well consent is an obvious one Um, relationships is an obvious one Um, alcohol is another one as well like when we can talk about consent or we can talk about decision making or respect or communication all the stuff that you think this belongs in a chat about relationships but now one or both people are drunk like uh, everything's changed, it the, the, it's just a different environment, and everything is a bit more sometimes fraught. Your ability to communicate effectively around consent, to hear each other's communications, to understand each other, to stand up straight, everything is compromised. So you've kind of got to help them tease out the impact of alcohol on their sexual decision making and their behaviours. Online porn is a huge one as well, so that obviously has to be to be approached in a, in a really comprehensive way more than just uh, be mindful of what you're watching it's unrealistic like actually get into it because the, like the teenage brain is wired to, to for, for, for novelty and for excitement um, and you, you go into a porn site now the algorithms know this and, and will take a teenage brain from a how you phrase it from a relatively normal healthy standard sexual encounter and after X amount of trips into the same website it's bringing you to more extreme scenes and by the time a youngster has spent any amount of time whether it's months or years going to the online porn industry for um, they're the only sexual experiences they're having at that age by the time they have actual sexual experiences they think what they've been seeing is the scene that needs to be replicated in the room um, and it's not just boys, it's girls as well, obviously, because in the absence of any other discussions about what sex involves or what a normal, healthy encounter should be or, like, h- how do you discuss condoms or, or how do you discuss what actually is going to happen here? Um, how do you check in that we're, we're still on the same page about what's happening here? Because none of those things happen in porn. In fact, in a lot of scenes, the word no is ignored or completely rejected or a woman's voice is completely ignored or a woman is an object to be aggressive and violent towards. And in a lot of scenes, the woman appears to find that pleasurable. So, like, an adult will be able to look at this and go, well, I've had 10, 20 years of actual sexual experiences, and this is a bit messed up. And it's younger than teens, isn't it? Because kids are getting, you know, their hands on phones or tablets at a very early age and they're curious or they're going to meet somebody who's older either, you know, on the way to school or they're just going to get there. I think Mm. pretending it's a big, scary monster that just has to be 
avoided. It just has to be tackled. And, you know, maybe this is the way for the parent that just feels out of their depth. Is an online course the way to do it? Or are you suggesting that they encourage teens to engage in your online course, then talk to them? How do we manage all of this information? I, I think, well, the, the, the online course is there now. It's a resource for anyone to access. And what we used to love when we did the sexual health module in school was the feedback we got that, that conversations happened at home or that I'd ask the, we'd ask the students after each week any conversations happened since last week. And, and they did. So you're kind of introducing them to talk about topics to one another. So it's, it's not just them learning content. It's them including it in their conversations now. Um, so ideally where we'd like this to go is that there's a big take up in schools in this. And so after each module, what the students could do at home or in, in class individually, that there's kind of facilitated discussions where the students can kind of tease out the different angles at which they approached each dilemma maybe that we presented or the questions that they have or the opinions or the issues they came up for them because teenagers look to each other for advice and guidance a lot. Like if you're 14, what a 43-year-old thinks is probably irrelevant, but what a 15 or 16-year-old thinks is really important. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. When you're 14, a 16-year-old is a worldly figure, right? So it's again to to bring up the conversation so this this course direct a teenager there and make yourself available for any conversations and really welcome any conversations that arise from it because they should and they will well if people want to find out more they can go to olivegroup.io forward slash share Richie Sadlier thank you very much for coming on it's a pleasure thanks a lot so that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Dundeal has the largest range of electric vehicles in Ireland from Ireland's trusted premium car dealerships. That's why you will find MSL Park Motor Skoda on Dundeal. Stop by MSL Park Motor Skoda showroom on Dundeal today and connect with them for great deals on electric vehicles. Dundeal, for electric vehicle deals to feel great about from all of Ireland's trusted car dealerships.